never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. All right, welcome everybody. Pastor Eli James here, and uh, tonight we're going to be uh, actually getting back to the subject of the true identity of the American Christian Israelite as given to us in the U.S. Constitution. And uh, the last couple of years, I've been pretty much focusing on COVID for obvious reasons. And, uh, but I think, I think we've actually turned a corner here where more people are beginning to see, smell a rat, put it that way, (laughs) smell a rat in what's going on in the world, with, uh, especially with regard to COVID and uh, overbearing government. And uh, I, think the, I think we are turning a corner now. Uh, the uh, convoy in Canada, which uh, according to a recent poll conducted by mainstream media up there, says 73% of the people support the anti-lockdown uh, convoy that's uh, taken the Canadian people by storm and it's uh, been spreading around the world with truckers and other people supporting it. So I think we're getting to a point where a what I've been hoping for and praying for is a great awakening. The great awakening and the more people who realize that the uh, here in America the U.S. Constitution, common law, and the Bible are all related. And remember, this is the Restoration Hour, and our motto has been to restore Christianity and then the Bible and the Constitution to their proper place in our society. And unless you realize that forces, primarily Jewish forces, but there are others as well, but the, the, the financing the real financing comes from the the global Jewish empire of merchants, Revelation chapter 18, the eighth beast. And anybody who does not recognize that is really not seeing, not seeing reality. Because you know, it's easy enough to blame the lockdown on COVID, but the tyranny behind it is both political and economic and you know you have to follow the money that, that's the uh, that's the story you have to follow the money and as i have been explaining to people the the covid nightmare is being financed by fiat money the money situation is paramount where does the money come from well it's joe biden's hyperinflation that's occurring right now which is being used to finance the hospitals and doctors and big pharma corporations with government money. 
that's basically money stolen from me and you by the Federal Reserve System and its quasi-governmental institutions such as Big Pharma. Big Pharma, the non-governmental uh, organizations, which are quasi-government, quasi-quote charities, right? I mean, the world, the economic world, and I almost said the economic forum, World Economic Forum, but that's part of it too. The World Economic Forum is a part of the Rothschild control mechanism of flowing money. And, uh, of course, Bill Gates and Fauci and Big Pharma are part of the means by which international government, uh, governance, because they're not elected officials, governance, uh, pseudo-government and pseudo-medicine, pseudo-religion, and and (laughs) pseudo-everything, pseudo-everything has taken over planet Earth as prophesied by the Bible, especially the book of Revelation and other points where we see Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul predicts there would be a great falling away from the true faith. Uh, the Apocalypse Baruch, where he says that a great stupor will befall the people of planet Earth. And COVID is exactly that stupor, as I have been saving, saying for the last couple of years now. So, But we need to understand how we got to this place, because we have to begin to undo what has been done to us, how they have destroyed our Constitution. And other institutions have taken the place, surreptitiously, of our founding document. So, I'm going to try to get into a full explanation of this. I have a document in front of me by Edward J. Arlt, which is dated, let me see, it's filed... There's a hand, a hand printed copy. I don't have anything. I've been searching online to see if I can find a copy of this document to share with you so you could look at it with me. Uh, I may just have to scan it and put it up on, uh, uh, on the website so people can uh, see this. But uh, this was an argument from the state of Texas where Edward J. Art lived. I'm not sure if he ever went to prison or not. I, I think he may have. But uh, Mr. Arlt was a a major thorn in the side of bureaucratic dictatorial government. And so this is the United States of America versus Edward J. Arlt et al. And I'm not sure who else might have been party to this lawsuit brought against him. And the, the nature of the divide is how the 14th Amendment changed the status of white citizens in America to second-class citizens under the guise of liberating blacks. Okay, so instead of actually liberating the blacks, which the 14th Amendment did not do, it really, what it did was it spread the slavery around. (laughs) And now anybody who's looking at the situation can see that now we are totally economic slaves of the international bankers and it's the Bank of England which is the source, the money pit or the money uh, game uh, that evil uh, I'm trying to remember the phrase used in scripture uh, the three frogs, the three evil frogs that uh, that uh, are in, the, in this earth 
ruling from behind the scenes that uh, are literally corrupting everything. Uh, it's impossible to to say how how corrupt everything is. But most people are living in a fog that, uh, of course, that that that, that uh, great phrase, the great uh, the great stupor of uh, Baruch. They're living in this fog. And this fog has been be created by false authority, false authority, because whenever you get corruption, the corruption always starts either at the top or close to the top, and then once the top gets corrupt, then the people underneath get corrupt. And what we're living in is a secular world, where Christianity once ruled the world, even though Christianity has never been a perfect institution, far from it. Nevertheless, there was always redress of grievances by the people, and we, but we've had our share of, share of revolutions. The uh, the country of England has had numerous revolutions, you know, uh, uh, peasants' revolts. Uh, most of these revolutions are Christian-based, uh, people demanding their rights and wanting to remove corrupt politicians and corrupt leaders. Uh, the uh, the system in Europe, uh, where the lords and barons and duchies, etc., etc., who again siphoned off the people, right? Taxed the people so that they could live in luxury, and it's no different today. The United Nations is just such an institution of fat cat bureaucrats stealing from the people through various forms of taxation and fiat money inflation. Fiat money inflation is. Fiat money inflation is an invisible tax. By printing more money or simply creating more money in terms of digits on a computer screen, they can pay off the hospital directors, the hospitals, to the tune of $100,000 per patient in this COVID, this COVID scam. So the, the incentivization of, for doctors and hospitals and hospital administrators and big pharma people to over-report COVID because once they report COVID on the, uh, on the admittance sheet, uh, they get like $3,000. And once, uh, once the uh, diagnosis is made firm, they get another $9,000. If they put you on a ventilator, it's $39,000. And with all the incentives added, it's about $100,000 per patient. Where does this money come from? It's being created by the Biden administration. That's why we're having this hyperinflation. The hyperinflation is financing COVID, the lockdowns, the whole shebang. That's what's going on. So the economics is just one unconstitutional uh, element of it. We're going to go into now the 14th Amendment and explain how we got where we are. And this is right after the Civil War when the radical abolitionists who were being, who were puppets of the Rothschilds, and the global communist movement of the day. The Great Reset is simply a, a reset of global communism as it was being instituted by the Rothschilds starting in the 1840s. Global communism, uh, the Freemasons, 
Giuseppe Massini was the world head of Freemasonry at the time, and he was running these corrupt institutions called the Young Turks, Young Italy, Young Germany. He even came to America and tried to start a, a movement called Young America. These were all communist movements by the Illuminati trying to get our youth involved in these glowing ideals of toppling capitalism in favor of absolute slavery called communism, right? But of course, when you brainwash young people, they don't know any better. And of course, the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers have been working on our young people in the colleges and even preschool, teaching communism and transgenderism and every form of degeneracy in the schools for the last 40, 50 years, if not longer, okay? But all these dictates come down from the United Nations, which is a Rothschild institution. Yeah, Schwab's young leaders, okay, I, I didn't even know that Schwab was using the same language. That's <laughs> right out of the communist Illuminati playbook. So these institutions are totally subversive, and they are experts at the smooth-talking con game, just like... Nahash smooth-talked Eve into a seduction, thus creating the line of Cain, the line of fallen angels, half-human, half-Adamite, half-fallen angel hybrids, of which, of course, uh, uh, King David uh, managed to kill one of those giants. Goliath in his day, but those people are still around, except most of them are a little shorter now. But let's uh, let's get into this. This is uh, in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Texas, Fort Worth Division. U.S. District Court, Northern District of Texas, filed March 28, 1986. Nancy Hall Doherty, Clerk, Civil Case Number CA4. 85, now hold on, I have to, there's a double printing here, B18K, so let me repeat, civil case number CA485, B18K, and Edward Arlt says, special appearance only under duress, a supplemental memorandum on classes of citizenship in support of the accused request for judicial notice of citizenship. Now, you may recall I have done many shows on the posterity, that we, white, Anglo-Saxon, Caucasian people, are the posterity of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that our U.S. Constitution recognizes the same language, the same posterity language, that, that meaning direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the covenant people, and no one else counts. No one else can be included as the covenant people. Israel, we are that people. The Jews are the great imposters, and these great imposters are trying to impose the great reset upon us yet again. This time it's on a global scale. And Edward J. Art, uh, again, it's a supplemental memorandum on classes of citizenship in support of the accused request for judicial notice of citizenship. So just a real quick overview of what's going on here. It all dates back to the 14th Amendment, and we'll be quoting the language of the 14th Amendment in this document. Whereas 
the 14th Amendment presumed, presumed, it didn't say it explicitly, but presumed to create a federal citizen, whereas the U.S. Constitution only created state citizens. And George Washington himself signed the very first immigration law. I'm, uh, I'm trying to remember. I think it was 18, uh, so, sorry, 1792, if I'm not mistaken. And there, there were several, I think the last one was 1802, very much all having the same language, that in order to be a citizen of the United States, which means you had to be a resident of a particular state, you had to be a free white person, it says white in the language. It says white, free white person. You have to be a resident of a, a particular state for two years, then you apply for citizenship, and then you're granted citizenship of a state. So up until the 14th Amendment, there was only one type of citizen, namely a state citizen. Because the Constitution is a document which created an agency of we the people. So the federal government is an agency of we the people. The people, according to the Constitution itself, created the federal government, and that federal government is a subservient agency to the states and the people, as clearly stated in the Tenth Amendment. So anybody who presumes to argue that the government is supreme ruler over the people is lying through its teeth. That's a lie. But the average American today has no idea that we the people are the true government. But the politicians are no longer listening to us, especially the free white citizens, because of the 14th Amendment and other legislation that has come on down the pike. So it began, uh, we began our country, uh, and uh, the, the Constitution says very specifically that we the people created this document for a, a subservient federal administration and for the rights of liberty, uh, fruits of happiness, etc., for us and our posterity the same language as is used of the covenant people in the Bible, which means direct descendants exclusively and no one else. Okay? And we're going to find out from reading this document that even though black people and others have been given the quote-unquote franchise or right to vote, that's still, it's done by federal decree, and they are literally owned as subjects and or slaves. Their slave status has not changed for the so-called minorities. Has not changed. What has changed is that our free white citizen posterity relationship to none other than Yahweh and our founding documents of posterity, the Bible, the common law, and the U.S. Constitution have all been subverted by very, very sneaky and uh, it doesn't get any sneakier <laughs> than the 14th Amendment. So I hope to get this language across to you how sneaky this is. Now, this is a 50-page document. So I'm not going to get through it today. So this is going to be part one of a series 
of because because this is so important this information is so important and i truly believe this is part of the great awakening and the coming out of babylon remember revelation chapter 18 and 19 tell us to come out of babylon we must reject the babylonian money systems illegitimate power grab over us and the more white people who can only white people can be citizens of this country and citizens of the state according to our natural laws according to the common law by the way the declaration of arbroath which i believe in the 1300s preceding the magna carta clearly states in it that the the people who put this declaration together uh, their ancestors crossed over the red sea okay so they had an understanding that they were israelites our ancestors who crossed the red sea that's it's stated right here in, in the declaration of our birth and the magna carta excludes jews it, it it has Jews in a, it holds Jews in a negative light. When they were expelled by, I believe it was King Edward I, and they later returned, I think under uh, Cromwell, they snuck back in. They, they were never, and that, uh, I think that decree of Edward I still stands. Jews are non-citizens of England, of the British Empire. Jews are non-citizens of America neither are blacks Latinos etc none of these people can be actual citizens of America because it says so in our founding documents yes well okay Jeffrey puts in the chat room the 14th rules over all quote-unquote US citizens which uh, I would say federal citizens because this is part of the confusing language that's contained in the 14th Amendment and post-14th Amendment documents, which confuse the issues between a, a free white person versus a non-white person. So the word citizen, as people understand it today, whether state citizen, U.S. citizen, you, you name the language, they, they falsely presume that non-whites can be citizens of this country. They cannot. They're ruled out. Okay. Yes, it's a legal term. But it's also a um, deceptive term. <laughs> right? So many people, uh, including Roger Sales and others that I've been working with, have uh, diagnosed this language. And I fully believe that this is part of the great awakening of the people of Israel in these latter days and the coming out of Babylon because we can legally declare that we reject this system by reestablishing our state citizenship. Let me put it that way. I don't want to confuse everybody with this, this terminology, but you, a true American citizen must be a citizen of a state and th that's where we get our true citizenship from. Okay. But the 14th Amendment created a quote-unquote federal citizen. And that's the terminology I'm going to use, federal citizen, because the term United States, United States of America, 
U.S. citizen. These are all, these terminologies, these phrases are all subject to different definitions. Where, so I want to try to keep this clear and use the term federal citizen, which did not exist. That class did not exist before the 14th Amendment. Okay? There was no such thing as a federal citizen before the 14th Amendment. There were only state citizens. All right, here's the language. Edward J. Arlt, A-R-L-T, appearing specially and not generally in propria persona in person. Sui juris, speaking for himself, his wife, and all their interests, hereby enters the following points and authorities pertaining to classes of citizenship which are intended to specifically supplement and support the accused's previous request for judicial notice of citizenship filed with this court on October 11, 1985. Okay, so what Mr. Arlt was trying to do is to reestablish his sovereignty as a state citizen of Texas, which all, according to the Constitution, all other states must recognize and the federal agency also must recognize. And up until, and, and by the way, it, it took it took the federal pseudo-government a hundred years before blacks could even vote in this country. So it took them a really long time to implement this false language and corrupt judges and lawyers and uh, all the people, politicians obviously, corrupt these people to the point where they could, uh, and of course, you know, the Israelis, the, the Jews in America were instrumental in overturning our Constitution in the 1950s and 1960s. So it took, it took the Jews over 100 years to get the language of the 14th Amendment implemented in America. And he continues, Further, the following points and authorities are intended as general support for the accused's continuing challenge to the exercise of jurisdiction over their persons by this court and the agency of the District of Columbia acting as nominee for the Federal Reserve Corporation. Okay, again, the Jews, specifically the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and uh, various other very powerful Jewish banking people were instrumental in creating Federal Reserve Bank, which became the economic, they, they controlled the checkbook of America when they created the Federal Reserve Bank. Of course, it is not a government institution. It's a private institution run by the international Jew, just as the Bank of England was in control of George III's government just before our first revolution. By the way, folks, the second one is happening right now. If you haven't noticed it, it's called COVID and the lockdown. The only difference is instead of wearing red coats, their minions are wearing white lab coats and they're Weapon of choice is the hypodermic needle by which they destroy our DNA, kill us, etc. This is what's happening, folks. Thank you, Adolf. He says, Meine Ehre heißt Treue. I am true to Father Yahweh. My honor 
to Yahweh. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's Jeffrey's comment to Adolf Richter. All right, so let's continue here. Further, the following points and authorities are intended as general support. I read this already, but I think it's worth reading again. For the accused's continuing challenge to the exercise of jurisdiction, the false, fraudulent exercise of jurisdiction over their persons by this court and the agency of the District of Columbia acting as nominee for the Federal Reserve Corporation. So when the Federal Reserve Bank was created by the Rothschilds, it was not to, con uh, not to make a better economy. It was so they could have the issuance of money and bribe politicians. And if those politicians didn't behave, they were assassinated. That's how it worked. And that's how it still works. The primary questions addressed here are as follows. One, to whom pertains the original common law citizenship of the Constitution of the United States? Now, as you know, the shows that I've done, I attribute the common law primarily to Alfred the Great, the so-called dooms that he instituted as King of England way back when, in which the laws of England were the continuation of the laws of Moses. It's just that simple. The laws of Moses were instituted by Alfred the Great, an Anglo-Saxon king, by the way. And that's called common law. Of course, it goes all the way back to the Bible, and anybody who knows anything about common law will tell you it goes back to the Bible. But it was instituted in Christian Britain, Christian England, by Alfred the Great. Continuing, number two, whether that de jure citizenship, de jure meaning uh, legal, factual citizenship, was destroyed with the advent of the 14th Amendment, okay, it was and it wasn't, <laughs> okay, it all depends on how you read the language, which is really deceptive, crafty language designed to give, uh, let's say, number one, plausible denial, and number two, to institute policies which are contrary to the original Constitution, yet don't seem so. Yeah, de jure it means lawful. Thank you, Jeffrey. So let me repeat number two. Whether that de jure citizenship was destroyed with the advent of the 14th Amendment. Actually, it was not. It was not. But the language creates a second class of citizenship which the free white citizens of America did not realize was being, the wool was being pulled over their eyes by, by the, the banking establishment, the Rothschild establishment. And de facto, Jeffrey says, is the usurping imposter. Yeah, de facto means, in fact, who's the, the, the lawful rulers versus the, in fact, you know, fait accompli, those people who rule, uh, they, they've, they've done a coup, they rule by coup, by usurpation. That's the type of leadership America has today, and the average American is utterly clueless about this. Number three, 
Whether the class or classes of de facto and artificial citizenship created via the 14th Amendment may be imposed sans knowledge or without the knowledge and consent upon one who is of a de jure citizenship. So can your artificial false government be imposed upon a lawful free white person? Well, of course, the answer to that is no, it can't. But it has been done ipso facto. That's the situation. So unfortunately, that's the situation we have to deal with. And now, how do we turn it around? How do we turn it around? Page 2. The following discussion of citizenship addresses questions of gravity and magnitude which should be of deep interest to all having an interest in justice. The mere discussion of such questions will affect many and bring to light much in the way of previously widely held fallacies. He misspelled the word fallacies with only one L. Which have long been used in the service of corruption. <laughs> The design and intent herein is to seek justice for the accused by making the subject a topic of serious discussion with a view of demanding upon it the solemn judgment of this court. Now, you probably remember some of the shows I did about Barbara Martin, also of Texas, who successfully appealed the judiciary in her state as a free white person. All she had to do was prove that she was a descendant of a free white person who was already a citizen of Texas, thereby making her a citizen uh, automatically, de facto, a good usage of the phrase de facto, citizen of any state she chooses to reside in, having uh, all she has, uh, a domicile is a, a place you live in, uh, in fact, whether it be in your home state or not, you can domicile in another state and still have all the rights and privileges of the other people, the citizens of that state. But I think in terms of voting, if you want to vote, you have to go back to, to Texas. Anyway, she filed suit as a free white citizen, won. She won that case. The court declared her to be a free white citizen, having no more to pay any income taxes, didn't have to have a driver's license, all the, all the garbage legislation, litigation, legislation, etc., False, false legislation imposed upon her vanished, simply vanished. In fact, but Barbara made a huge mistake, a huge mistake. She wasn't quite prepared, which is often the case, and I think even Ed Arlt admits that he wasn't quite prepared for uh, getting uh, a, uh, an award of grievances. So the judge asked Barbara Martin, well, uh, what's your, uh, what are your damages? And Barbara had, had no idea. <laughs> what, what, are, what are the damages? Okay, uh, and uh, Jeffrey just put a, uh, an interview. Uh, I think it's, yeah, Roger, Roger Sales and uh, Spingola. And Spingola, there's a link there. Yeah, uh, please uh, take that link and you can listen to that later. And uh, Barbara Martin said to the judge, damages? What damages? Do I get damages? <laughs> she could have been awarded all of the taxes she had paid in. She could have got that back. 
because it was all illegitimate in the first place. All the license fees that she paid for her Texas driver's license and, oh, taxes upon real estate? She could have got all that back. But she didn't think of that. She was just happy to set the president, president, right? We should only wish precedent, set the precedent of regaining her sovereign citizenship. Okay, so this has been done by people successfully. And I think Ed Arlt did it successfully too. Let's continue. He continues after de uh, demanding, demanding the court a solemn judgment. Therefore, the accused, namely Ed Arlt, both being free white citizens, uh, the accused, he's including his wife, the accused, both being free white citizens pursuant to the organic law, so organic law, common law, racial law, biblical law, those are all synonymous, would show the court as follows. Point number one, I believe there's seven points altogether. Point number one, the original Constitution of the United States, 1870, oh sorry, 1787, and its Bill of Rights, 1791, is the organic law of the nation. The founding law of the nation is the perpetual authority upon which the continued existence of the nation itself is predicated. As such, the founding law carries universal authority and cannot be overthrown nor subverted without repudiating the very existence of the nation established thereby. And that, of course, is set by the preamble of the Constitution in which we, the people, declare ourselves to be free from not just England, but free from any corrupt power on the planet, any other power on the planet. And these freedoms devolve unto our posterity, meaning direct descendants exclusively. And here he defines organic law. This is from Black's Law Dictionary, 4th edition, page 1251. Organic law, the fundamental law or constitution of a state or nation, written or unwritten, that law or system of laws, the unwritten law is Christianity, Mosaic Christianity. That law or system of laws or principles which defines and establishes the organization of its government. And that case is St. Louis versus Dorr. I'm going to skip all the numbers following that. St. Louis versus Dorr, D-O-R-R. Uh, 145 MO apparently in the state of Missouri. Next, quote, the authority of the organic law is universally acknowledged. It speaks the sovereign will of the people. The people, not the federal agency that the Constitution created. So many people. Uh, do we live in the age of authoritarianism or what? It's because the typical American who should know better, white American here, who should know better that we the people are the authority and not the dang, <laughs> the dang government, so-called. They're not the government. They're the servants. They're the servants. 
Let me start over. The authority of the organic law is universally acknowledged. It speaks of the sovereign will of the people. Its injunction regarding the process of legislation as is authoritative as are those touching the substance of it. Southern State Constitution number 44. Sutherland, it's, I'm sorry, it's abbreviated. S-U-T-H period. S-T-A-T period. C-O-N-S-T period. 44, note 1. And finally, a quote from the Constitution itself. This Constitution shall be the supreme law of the land. Article 6, Constitution of the United States, 1787. So as I have been arguing over the years, the common law and biblical law are one and the same. They are one and the same. Anybody who presumes to overthrow the common law is a traitor. Period. And what's the penalty for treason? Now, it's a really long quote here from the case Marbury, M-A-R-B-U-R-Y, versus Madison, 1 Cranch 237, at pages 176 to 178. Quote, that the people have an original right to establish for their future government such principles as, in their opinion, shall most conduce to their own happiness, is the basis on which the whole American fabric has been erected. The exercise of this original right is a very great exertion, nor can it, nor ought it to be frequently repeated. I think the way in which our country was established by revolution is what's being referred to here, but I think we're going to have to repeat it. The principles, therefore, so established are deemed fundamental, and as the authority from which they proceed is supreme, it's the supreme law of the land, and can seldom act, they are designed to be permanent. And it's a principle of American law that any amendment which militates against the original intent of the U.S. Constitution is void. Null and void. Therefore, the 14th Amendment is null and void. But it wasn't perceived so by legal scholars of the time. And maybe it was. Actually, I have a, a really good document from Congressman Rarick from 1967 in the Congressional Record where he argues that the, the language of the 14th Amendment is totally fraudulent and deceptive. So this, this idea that the 14th Amendment is fraudulent and deceptive was understood by many people, but not enough people. Continuing, this original and supreme will organizes the government and assigns to different departments their respective powers. See that? Assigns respective powers. The agency, called the federal government, cannot overthrow the Constitution and cannot amend it unless by, I think it's still a two-thirds majority, of the states. That did not happen with the Federal Reserve Act. It did not happen with the 16th Amendment. And I'm sure it didn't happen with the, uh, the so-called legislation creating the tax-exempt corporations. All of these so-called legislations were snuck in deceitfully. 
with the threat of uh, assassination by the Jew banksters. Continuing. The government of the United States is of the latter description. The powers of the legislature are defined and limited. Limited. Not supreme. The Constitution is supreme and the powers delegated to the federal government are limited. By, by the language of the Constitution. But people today think that the federal government is supreme. It may either stop here. Let me start this paragraph over. This is only two sentences, but very important sentences. This original and supreme will organizes the government and assigns to different departments their respective powers. It may either stop here or establish certain limits not to be transcended by those departments. And the Constitution establishes limits to those departments. But those departments not only uh, ignore the Constitution, they have created a million other departments, such as the Department of Homeland Security, Homeland Subversion, and on and on and on. Every single agency created by federal dictator Rosenfeld was unconstitutional and snuck in on the pretext of the Great Depression, which was caused by the banksters themselves. Continuing, the government of the United States is of the latter description, where the people are sovereign, the Constitution is their will, and all other agencies are subservient to it. The powers of the legislature are defined and limited, and that those limits may not be mistaken or forgotten. The Constitution is written. To what purpose are powers limited? And to what purpose is that limitation committed to writing? If these limits may at any time be passed by those intended to be restrained. <laughs> by passed he means overridden. Overridden by those that the, that the Constitution intends to restrain. Wow, how often has that happened in our history? Yes, the 16th should also be considered null and void. Right? Uh, and... Uh, uh, the, the Law That Never Was is a great book on that subject. It was never ratified by the sufficient number of states. But Wilson signed it anyway, just as he signed the Federal Reserve Act under duress. Wilson signed those two acts and also declared war against Germany under duress. What duress? Well, the Rothschilds had found out he had had an affair with Mary Peck before becoming president. And they used that information as blackmail. So Wilson was being blackmailed to do the will of the perfidious Jew. The distinction between a government with limited and unlimited powers is abolished if, the, if, the, if this uh, constitution is overridden. If those limits do not confine the persons on whom they are imposed, and if acts prohibited and acts, and acts allowed are of equal obligation, it is a proposition too plain to be contested that the Constitution controls any legislative act repugnant to it. But of course, 
the Jews who have subverted every nation in Europe and that's why they've been tossed out of every nation in Europe and will be again they have subverted every nation in Europe by these subversive means or that the legislature may alter the Constitution by an ordinary act which they attempt to do constantly by deceitful language it doesn't take so here, here's the deal the Bank of England using King George George's army composed mainly of mercenaries German mercenaries hired out by the Elector of Hesse to make war against the American people it was the Bank of England it was the Bank of England that staged the American the war against the colonies King George was merely their puppet he was their puppet as Benjamin Franklin eloquently stated the real reason for the American Revolution was the fact that the Bank of England refused to allow the colonies to have their own money that was the real reason it was economic imperialism by the Bank of England and they reinstituted that economic imperialism with the Federal Reserve Act continuing between these alternatives that either the Constitution is supreme or it isn't between these two alternatives there is no middle ground the Constitution is either a superior paramount law unchangeable by ordinary means by executive order we are being ruled by executive orders mandates from governors disregarding their legislatures has our Constitution been subverted or not between these alternatives there is no middle ground the Constitution is either a superior paramount law unchangeable by ordinary means or it is on a level with ordinary legislative acts and like other acts is alterable when the legislature shall please to alter it no they can't do it you have to have a two-thirds majority of the states in order to amend the Constitution and the lockdown the COVID lockdown and mandates have not been ratified by any legislature it is all illegal continuing if the former part of the alternative be true then a legislative act contrary to the Constitution is not law if the latter part be true then written constitutions are absurd attempts on the part of the people to limit a power in its own nature illimitable well it has turned out to be somewhat illimitable right we have only been able to secure our rights with blood sweat and tears and there's going to be more blood sweat and tears certainly all those who have framed written constitutions contemplate them as forming the fundamental and paramount law of the nation and consequently the theory of every such government must be that an act of the legislature repugnant to the Constitution is void numerous legal scholars have stated the same thing if then the courts are to regard the Constitution 
and the Constitution is superior to any ordinary act of the legislature, the Constitution and not such ordinary act must govern the case to which they both apply. So Mr. Arlt is quoting this piece of, uh, this piece of judicial reasoning from Marbury versus Madison to the court that has accused him of what? What have they accused of him? Well, they have accused him of violating the 14th Amendment, right? And he's saying, I'm having none of it. I am a, a de jure citizen of the state of Texas. I am your boss, you scumbags. I am your boss. You work for me, not vice versa. If then the courts are to regard the Constitution and the Constitution as superior to any ordinary act of the legislature, the Constitution and not such ordinary act must govern the case to which they both apply. There's another typo here. I have to make note of this because we're going to clean this document up and present it again to the American people. And this should be required reading for every white American. Those then who controvert the principle that the Constitution is to be considered in court as a paramount law are reduced to the necessity of maintaining that courts must close their eyes on the Constitution and see only the law. Marbury versus Madison. So, the supposed law. Yes, lockdowns and mandates are legal in the sense that they are instituted by elected officials and lawyers <laughs> and but the fact is many judges around the country have ruled that the mandates are illegal and unconstitutional of course the mass media owned by the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and the rest of their ilk never report these things or they make light of them if they are reported let me take a quick sip of water here And I've been debating whether or not to call this movement the posterity movement or the birthright movement. It could be called either because we, especially we of the English-speaking world, constitute the birthright tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. Joseph is the birthright tribe. I think the children of Joseph in the modern world, being primarily Great Britain and America and all the English-speaking nations that have been formed by us, including Canada and uh, Australia, New Zealand, etc., we are the most populous. I, I think these two tribes, the birthright tribe, is more populous than all the others put together. I haven't done uh, any study of that, but definitely the sons of Joseph have been blessed with numerous offspring. Now those offspring need to come together. That birthright offspring need to come, that posterity needs to come together and declare our common law, biblical, mosaic rights. Point number two. The organic law and the union founded thereon is perpetual. 
The preamble to the Constitution of the United States declares the intent and purpose of the covenant. Let me just quickly add here, I certainly won't have enough time to discuss the condition or the institution of the state of Texas, which presumably has an opt-out clause that they can simply uh, you know, dissolve its relationship with the rest of the Union at any time it pleases. But the language of the te Texas Constitution is virtually identical to the language of the U.S. Constitution uh, and only points out special circumstances, namely its relationship to the country of Mexico and uh, what the, that their Constitution states as double-dealing against the white uh, immigrants into Texas, which the state, uh, the, the government of Mexico actually invited them in let them uh, live there, uh, presumably to pay taxes to the Mexican government, etc. But then uh, the government of Mexico reneged on that deal when it turned out, well, these white people are uh, you know, breeding. <laughs> They're outnumbering the Mexicans by leaps and bounds. Why? Why? Because we're builders. Wherever we go, we build infrastructure. We create civilization. Whereas the Mexicans were content to just... Uh, What's the term they use uh, for, for their noontime break? Siesta. That <laughs> They were engaged in the politics of siesta. Yes, and uh, this statement is evidence. He's providing evidence to the court that he is a common law citizen, the state citizen, which is the only citizenship that the Constitution recognizes yes they're good at creating tacos right <laughs> okay let me repeat now point number two the organic law and the union founded thereon is perpetual the preamble to the constitution of the united states declares the intent and purpose of the covenant ah i like that word covenant the abrahamic covenant whether Mr. Arlt realizes he's talking about the Abraham Covenant, I don't know. But that is, in fact, what's involved here, folks. Okay. So, he says, he quotes now the preamble. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, more perfect than the Articles of Confederation that preceded it, Establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and, now listen, our posterity do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America, of which at this point in time there were only 13 with the view, of course, of adding many more states down the road who would be subject to the same preamble. Justice Story, in his com commentaries on the Constitution, expounded on the importance and purpose of the preamble. Quote, The importance of examining the preamble for the purpose of expounding the language of a statute has been long felt and universally conceded in all judicial discussions. It is an admitted maxim in the ordinary course of the administration of justice that the preamble of a statute is a key to open the mind of the makers as to the mischiefs which are to be remedied and the objects which are to be accomplished by the provisions of the statute. 
we find it laid down in some of our earliest authorities in the common law. And civilians are accustomed to a similar expression, cessante legis pre premio, cessat et ipsa lex. Maybe uh, somebody in the chat room can translate the Latin here. I don't like it when they quote Latin law, <laughs> which is Roman law, which is admiralty law, commercial law, etc. We don't want to do that. Speak English, Mr. Story. In any case, probably it has a foundation in the exposition of every code of written law from the universal principle of interpretation that the will and intention of the legislature is to be regarded and followed. Of course it is. Adolf, on request of rabbi from Philadelphia Constitutional Convention, got rid of the amendment that every U.S. politician in the office have to be Christians. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. There was a request from, of a rabbi. But, uh, yeah, at some point, the, the original constitutions of all 13 colonies all stipulated that you have to be a Christian to hold office. Some states actually uh, dictated that you have to be a Protestant. Because at that time, only Maryland had a, a majority of Catholics. Yeah, we're talking about the law of the city versus the law of the land or of the posterity. The law of the city of London, the banking headquarters of planet Earth. So let me repeat this. Probably it has a foundation in the exposition of every code of written law from the universal principle of interpretation that the will and intention of the legislature is to be regarded and followed. And as we quoted earlier, it cannot be contradicted. It is properly resorted to where doubts or ambiguities arise upon the words of the enacting part. For if they are clear and unambiguous, there seems little room for interpretation, except in cases leading to an obvious absurdity or to a direct overthrow of the intention expressed in the preamble. Okay, and this is what the 14th Amendment was all about. It wasn't a direct overthrow. It, through this extremely subtle, deceptive language, the 14th Amendment changed the citizenship status of blacks, and only blacks, from non-chattel slavery to denizens as U.S. citizens of the District of Columbia. Because it only applied to the District of Columbia at the time. But by subterfuge has been expanded to the entire country and imposed upon the otherwise free white citizens. Again, this is from Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States by Joseph Story, Volume 1, page 443 and 444. He's going to quote from Mr. Story's book frequently in this document, so I'll just mention Joseph Story, and uh, I won't mention it, the title of, of the book. All right, again, this is Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States by Joseph Story. With the authority of Justice Story, then, we examine the wording of the preamble as to the Union. The Union spoken of in the preamble is apparently the one declared in the Declaration of Independence, 1776, 
and organized in accordance with certain articles of confederation and perpetual union between the states of so-and-so, which declared that, quote, the union shall be perpetual, unquote. Now, I underlined the word apparently here because I don't think the Declaration of Independence foresaw the Constitution. But the language is very similar and done by the same people. <laughs> free white male, free white citizens, most of them male. Certain states gave citizenship of voting rights to women, certain others didn't. But we will see that you have to be a free white person to be a citizen of your state and only a citizen of the state will have voting rights period that was the intention of the founders and that is still the law of the land despite all of the subterfuge and usurpation that has taken place in between so he quoted, quoted here Mr. Art quoted from Texas versus White 7 Wallace 700. This was on page 4 of his document. Now turning to page 5. Quote. Uh, let me take a look at the end. Yeah, okay, so he's going to quote at length from the same ruling. This is again Texas versus White. 7 Wallace 700 at pages 724 to 726. And this ruling was handed down in 1868. Post 14th Amendment. Quote, the union of the states never was a purely artificial and arbitrary relation. It began among the colonies and grew out of common origin, mutual sympathies, kindred principles, similar interests, and geographical relations. It was confirmed and strengthened by the necessities of war and received definite form and character and sanctioned from the Articles of Confederation, which were the loose uh, principles by which the colonies confederated even before the Revolutionary War. By these, the Union was solemnly declared to be perpetual. So that idea of perpetuality actually is earlier than the Constitution. It goes back to the Articles of Confederation. When these articles were found to be inadequate to the exigencies of the country, the Constitution was ordained, quote, to form a more perfect union, unquote. And by the way, I remind everybody that every one of these colonies was Christian. Not Judeo-Christian, Christian. It is difficult to convey the idea of indissoluble unity more clearly than by these words. What can be indissoluble if a, if a perpetual union made more perfect? Is it not? The only lack of perfection is that the founders did not conceive of the deceitful, spiteful, and deceptive language of the perfidious Jew. Benjamin Franklin warned the Constitutional Convention of this fact, but they did not listen. Of course, the country was still you know, reeling and recovering from the Revolutionary War, and very, very few other leaders of our country had the vision that Benjamin Franklin did, or the experience that he had, because he went to London and witnessed the depravity, the 
filth and garbage in the streets of the city of London and uh, the uh, lack of rights of the British people under rule of the Bank of England, because that's what it was. It's the rule by the Bank of England. Continuing, but the perpetuity and indissolubility of the Union by no means implies the loss of distinct and individual existence or of the right of self-governance by the states. Okay? So the Constitution did not eliminate the self-government of the states. In fact, the Constitution was created by the states. The people of those states. As the Tenth Amendment clearly specifies, anything, any limitation of government not specified in this Constitution is relegated to the states and or the people. Okay, and only free white persons are to be considered. Yes, uh, Franklin was the U.S. ambassador to France, but he spent a lot of time in Britain. He spent a lot of time in Britain, too. Okay, so let's continue. So, let me repeat this. But the perpetuity and indissolubility of the Union by no means implies the loss of distinct and individual existence or of the right of self-government by the states. Okay? The states were not dissolved. In fact, the new states that came into being are under the same principles as the original 13 colonies. Let's continue. Under the Articles of Confederation, each state retained its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right not expressly delegated to the United States or the federal government. Under the Constitution, though the powers of the states were much restricted, still all powers not delegated to the federal government, it uses the term United States here, but I want to, because the the term United States and United States of America and America, things like that, are, are defined different ways in different places. So I'm going to use the term federal government, okay, or federal agency, which is probably better, federal agency, because they are not really the government. They're supposed to do the will of the people, but they don't. And then he, he actually uses the language of the amendment. And here we go. So, under the Articles of Confederation, each state retained its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right not expressly delegated to the federal government. Under the Constitution, though the powers of the states were much restricted, not really. The power of the states were not really restricted. They simply created an agency to do the will of all the states and the people therein. The restriction, uh, the federal government has no authority over the states and should not have any authority in the internal dealings of a particular state. Nevertheless, we see, for example, in California, when the people of California voted to close their border and not let any more Mexicans in, some federal judge totally illegally and with authoritarian dictatorship declared that vote null and void. You see how they have been nibbling away at the Constitution, actually starting with Wilson, and even worse with Rosenfeld. And virtually every other president has done something to, you know, to chip away at the Constitution ever since. 
Okay. And then he says, under the Constitution, though the powers of the states were much restricted, still all powers not delegated to the federal government nor prohibited to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And I think there's only seven powers enumerated in the Constitution which are granted to the federal agency, and those have clearly to do with self-defense, defending the entire country, and building roads, and things of that nature. And we have already had occasion to remark at this term that the people of each state compose a state. The people of each state compose a state. Having its own government or representation is even better. Having its own representation and endowed with all the functions essential to separate and independent existence, unquote. Not sure, it's a quote within the quote, not sure, but there's a, there's a footnote here if I can find it. I don't think it's in this document. I think he may have left it. Oh, wait a minute, no, no, I don't see it in this document. There's a footnote here, I'll see. When we clean this document up, I'll have to find what the source of this footnote is. Continuing, not only therefore can there be no less of separate and independent autonomy to the states through their union under the Constitution, but it may not unreasonably be said that the preservation of the states and the maintenance of their governments are as much within the design and care of the Constitution as the preservation of the union and the maintenance of the national government. The Constitution, in all its provisions, looks to an indestructible union composed of indestructible states. Let me repeat that. I like this. The Constitution, in all its provisions, looks to an indestructible union composed of indestructible states. And if we keep on obeying Yahweh's laws, or get back to obeying Yahweh's laws, this union will be preserved until the judgment day where an even more perfect union will be established. Continuing, again, this is from Texas versus White, 7 Wallace, 700, pages 724 to 726. One more paragraph here. When, therefore, Texas became one of the United States, she entered into an indissoluble relation all the obligations of perpetual union and all the guarantees of republican government in the union attached at once to the state. The act which consummated her admission into the union was something more than a compact. It was the incorporation of a new member into the political body. And it was final. The union between Texas and the other states was as complete, as perpetual, and as indissoluble as the union between the original states. There was no place for reconsideration or revocation except through revolution or through consent of the states. So there is a way out for Texas according to this ruling, which is if the other states agree to let Texas go, then go. <laughs> right? Uh, let, let's let go of California. Let's let go of Cook County. Let's go, let go of Washington, D.C. and New York City, Chicago, etc., But I think any state that is considering severing its relationship with the Union should not 
do so in a, a, a you know, a burn its bridges, let's put it that way, should not try to sever them perpetu- uh, perpetually because they, they have a lot of support. Texas has a lot of support from people outside of Texas. You don't want to, you want to, you don't want to destroy that relationship. Similarly, the term established as used in the preamble means to fix perpetually. This is from Black's Law Dictionary, page 642. Establish, one, to set and fix firmly or unalterably, to settle permanently. And Black's Law Dictionary quotes Genesis, uh, what is this, 42, in Roman numerals, I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. Okay, so Black's Law Dictionary actually quotes the covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Number two, to found permanently, to erect and fix or settle, as to establish a colony or empire. Three, to enact or decree by authority and for permanence. Four, to settle or fix, to confirm. Five, to make firm, to confirm, to ratify what has been previously set or made. And then there's another quotation not from, from the New Testament. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Romans chapter 3. An American, this is from, I'm sorry, I misspoke. It's not from Black's Law Dictionary. These quotes are from an American Dictionary of the English Language, Noah Webster, 1828 reprinted by the Foundation for American Christian Education, 1967. Now, this is from Black's Law Dictionary. Establish. This word occurs frequently in the Constitution of the United States, and it is there used in different meanings. One, to settle firmly, to fix unalterably, as to establish justice, which is the avowed object of the Constitution. Also, to settle or fix firmly, a place on a permanent footing, found, create, put beyond doubt or dispute, prove, convince. That's from Black's Law Dictionary, page 642. Arlt comments here now. Thus, if the union spoken of is perpetual, then so too the founding law upon which that union was predicated in the first place, and so also the de jure citizenship created thereby. Okay. Yes, and Jeffrey states in the chat room, the states could not engage in international diplomacy as a separate entity. But the corporations do. The NGOs do. The United Nations, which is an entity totally separate and distinct from the United States of America, has presumed to meddle in our affairs, bribe our politicians, assassinate our politicians, etc., etc., Point number three. The Constitution was ordained not by the states, but by the people of the states who, as the creators, were and are the sovereign. Quote, The Constitution of the United States was ordained and established not by the states in their sovereign capacities, but emphatically, as the preamble of the Constitution declares, by the people of the United States. Hunter versus Martin one wheat 305 at page 324 decision made in 1814 quote the government of the union then is emphatically and truly a government of the people not of dictators in the form and in substance it emanates from them 
its powers are granted by them and are to be exercised directly on them and for their benefit. Is COVID for our benefit? I don't think so, folks. McCullough versus Maryland, 4 Wheat, 316-1819. Now, another very long quote. I'm going to have to go to the next page to find out the source here. Okay, now Mr. Arlt is in Section 3, going to be quoting extensively from the Dred Scott uh, decision and more from Mr. Justice Story. So I think this first quote, very long, is from the commentaries by Joseph Story. And we quote, We have already had occasion in considering the nature of the Constitution to dwell upon the terms in which the preamble is conceived and the proper conclusion deducible from it. It is an act of the people and not of the states in their political capacities. It is an ordinance or establishment of government and not a compact, though originating in consent. And it binds as a fundamental law promulgated by the sovereign authority and not as a compact or treaty entered in a, a fieri. Does that mean fire? <laughs> the fires of the revolution? In fieri, F-I-E-R-I, sorry I should have, this language slipped by me between each and all of the citizens of the United States as distinct parties. The language is, we the people of the United States, not we the, not we the states, do the people of the United States, not we the states, do ordain and establish, not do contract and enter into a re- treaty with each other, this Constitution for the United States of America, not this treaty between the several states, And it is, therefore, an unwarrantable assumption not to call it a most extravagant stretch of interpretation, wholly at variance with the language, to substitute other words and other senses for the words and senses incorporated in this solemn manner into the substance of the instrument itself. Okay, you can't change the language. Yeah, Adolf, you're correct that we actually do own the Federal Reserve because if it is, in fact, constituted under the U.S. Constitution, then it should belong to us, shouldn't it? Because, number one, they're stealing our wealth through inflation. And then they they presume to uh, write checks on our our money, (laughs) right? That's what they do. And that's how COVID is being financed. We have the strongest assurances that this, this preamble was not adopted as a mere formulary, but as a solemn promulgation of a fundamental fact, vital to the character and operations of the government, that it was created by the people, not by any other entity. The obvious object was to substitute a government of the people for a confederacy of the states, a constitution for a compact. The difficulties arising from this source were not slight, for a notion commonly enough, however incorrectly, prevailed that, as it was ratified by the states only, the states respectively at their pleasure might repeal it. No, the representatives of the people of those states were at the Constitutional Convention. They spoke for the people. 
with the exception, I think, of Rhode Island. Rhode Island was not present, but they did not object to it. Maybe they just didn't have enough people, somebody who had enough money to travel to Philadelphia. I don't know. And this of itself proved the necessity of laying the foundations of a national government deeper than in the mere sanction of delegated power. Again, folks, I'm telling you, this is Yahweh's doing. This language is Yahweh's doing because we are that posterity. The convention determined that the fabric of American empire, poor choice of words there, ought to rest and should rest on the solid basis of the consent of the people. Oh, are the, are the lockdowns and the injections given with by informed consent? Hmm? Is there any informed consent involved in these mandates? I don't think so, folks. You can see how these lockdowns and mandates are totally repugnant to the spirit of the Constitution. The streams of national power ought to flow and should flow immediately from the highest original fountain of all legitimate authority. Actually, that's Yahweh God. Because all of the founders believed in God. They just had a, they called him Providence. But it was the Christian, the creator, the Christian creator, as they understood it. And accordingly, the advocates of the Constitution so treated it in their reasoning in favor of its adoption. The Constitution, said the Federalist, is to be founded on the assent and ratification of the people of America, that is the free white citizens, given by deputies elected for that purpose, representatives. But this assent and ratification is to be given by the people, not as individuals composing a whole nation, but as composing the distinct and independent states to which they belong. Nevertheless, they were represented state by state, but it was the will of the people that they were presenting at the Constitutional Convention. And the uniform doctrine of the highest judicial authority has accordingly been that it was the act of the people and not of the states, and that it bound the latter as subordinate to the people. Okay, Every state institution is subordinate to the people. Now I remind you that at Mount Sinai, even though the law was delivered from Yahweh through Moses to the people, they ratified it. The Israelites ratified it. They said, yes, we will do Yahweh's will as expounded by Moses at Mount Sinai. But did they do it? No, of course. We are not perfect. We don't always do what's right. And, of course, the Israelites of the Old Testament rarely did what was right. It was only a minority, the remnant, that still survives in us today that has kept Yahweh's laws. Let's continue. Let us turn, said Mr. Chief Justice Jay, to the Constitution. The people therein declare that their design in establishing it commanded, comprehended rather six objects. One, to form a more perfect union. Two, to establish justice. Three, to ensure domestic tranquility. Four, to provide for the common defense. Five, to promote the general welfare. Six, to secure the blessings of liberty to themselves and their posterity. Their posterity. 
Yes, acquiescence is tacit consent, and unfortunately the American people have acquiesced, not realizing the, e the great evil that is unfolding and, and enslaving them. Okay. And uh, let's see. To establish justice. Again, that's common law. To provide for the common defense. The Constitution only established militias controlled by the several states. There was no standing army, just as Israel had no standing army, but had militias. It would, he added, be pleasing and useful to consider and trace the relations which each of these objects bears to the others, and to show that collectively they comprise every requisite with the blessing of divine providence, to render a people prosperous and happy. Again, commentaries by Joseph Story. Now from the Dred Scott decision. The words people of the United States and citizens are synonymous terms and mean the same thing. They both describe the political body who, according to our Republican institutions, form the sovereignty and who hold the power and conduct the government through their representatives. Again, the people are the power, not the institutions. The people are the power. The posterity of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We, the people, are the true authority. And we're taking our authority back. Let me repeat this. This is very important. These two, two terms, the people of the United States and the, the word citizen, form the sovereignty and who hold the power and conduct the government through their representatives. They are what we familiarly call the sovereign people, and every citizen is one of these people and a constituent member of this sovereignty. The question before us is whether the class of persons described in the plea in abatement, I think the, term, uh, the case was a uh, black slave who resided in Illinois where there was no slavery, uh, wanted uh, his or her freedom. I don't remember if it was male or female. And Red Scott decision said, well, no, you can't be considered a citizen because you're not white. <laughs> That's basically what the Red Scott, which upholds the original intent of the founders. It simply does. Okay? The question before us is whether the class of persons described in the plea and abatement compose a portion of this people. Namely, do liberated or manumitted black slaves from the South suddenly become citizens of the state of Illinois and the court ruled, and are constituent members of this sovereignty? Can blacks be considered part of this sovereignty? They say, we think they are not, and that they are not included, and were not intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution, and can therefore claim none of the rights and privileges which that instrument provides for and secures to the citizens of the United States, which, of course, are only free white people. On the contrary, they were at that time considered as a subordinate and inferior class of beings 
who had been subjugated by the dominant race, and whether emancipated or not, yet remained subject to their authority, to the authority of the free whites, and had no rights or privileges but such as those who held the power and the government might choose to grant them. Yes, the blacks were not a part of the posterity and cannot ever be. They cannot be part of the posterity of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They simply cannot be. It is not the province of this court to decide upon the justice or injustice, the policy or impolicy of these laws. The decision of that question belonged to the political or lawmaking power, to those who formed the sovereignty and framed the Constitution. The duty of the court is to interpret the instrument that they have framed with the best lights we can obtain on the subject and to administer it as we find it according to its true intent and meaning when it was adopted. This is Dred Scott versus Sanford, 19 Howard 393 at pages 404 and 405. Again, I remind you that George Washington himself signed the first immigration law that only free white persons can become citizens of America and that they have to reside in one particular state for a period of two years upon which such person can apply for citizenship of that state. So, the way the Constitution reads and the intent of the founders is that you have to be a citizen of a state. There was no such thing as federal citizenship. There was only state citizenship, and that citizenship only applied to free white persons. Understood? Point number four. We the people were and are one people of one faith. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Now, uh, before I even get into this, a lot of liberals and even many uh, Christians, Judeo-Christians, will tell you that, that there is no, uh, what's the term uh, for a state religion? That that dispute was all about whether one particular denomination of Christianity should have state support. That's what that dispute is about. It's not has nothing to do with Judaism or Islam or Zoroastrianism or anything else. The intent of the law is to prevent any particular denomination from be, of Christianity from being the state religion, such as the Anglican Church was in England, the Catholic Church under Roman law, etc. That's what the founders were trying to avoid. So let's continue. The Declaration of Independence declares the grievances and justification of one people, necessitating their separation from another, another people. It calls upon the law of God, <laughs> the laws of nature and nature's God, as justification for that separation and asserts their inalienable rights and natural station as having been endowed upon them by their creator. This, folks, is the Abrahamic covenant. It's the Adamic dominion covenant as stated in Genesis chapter 1. Whether they fully realized that that's what they were doing, 
ratifying the Abrahamic covenant? Obviously, some of the founders realized that that is the case. Continuing, the document concludes with the invocation, quote, with firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So that was from the Declaration of Independence. Similarly, the preamble to the Constitution of the United States designates the citizenship of the United States and declares it to be by right of blood. <laughs> oh my goodness. By right of blood. What blood? Adamic blood, folks. With the words, quote, To ourselves and our posterity. The one people of the Declaration of Independence are we the people of the preamble. Who then were the men who framed and ratified this Constitution? Of what religious persuasion were they? And of what race were they? So that we might know to whom the words ourselves and our posterity pertained. This list of the framers is as follows. This is Ed Arlt speaking. I forgot to mention that. I stopped quoting from the Dred Scott decision uh, on the previous page. And these are Ed, uh, Arlt's words. Now he lists the representatives. George Washington, who obviously was from uh, a president at the time and deputy from Virginia. They referred to them as deputies. Yes, by right of DNA. Thank you, Jeffrey. Absolutely. That's the tree of life of the Adamic race, DNA. New Hampshire, John Langdon, Nicholas Gilman. Massachusetts, Nathaniel Gorham and Rufus King. New Jersey, William Livingston, David Brearley, William Patterson, Jonathan Dayton. Pennsylvania, B. Franklin, Robert Morris, Thomas Fitzsimmons, James Wilson, Thomas Mifflin, George Clymer, Jared Ingersoll, Governor Morris. Now, I don't know if that's his name, his first name is Governor, or whether he was some kind of governor of Pennsylvania at the time. Of course, the reason why there's so many Pennsylvanians is because the Constitution was held in Philadelphia. Connecticut, William Samuel Johnson and Roger Sherman. New York, oddly, only one representative from New York. Can you guess who that is? None other than Alexander Hamilton. Maryland, James McHenry, Daniel Carroll, Dan of St. Saint, uh, Saint Thomas Jennifer. Never heard of him. Dan of St. Thomas Jennifer. Virginia, of course, including George Washington above. John Blair and James Madison, Jr. North Carolina, William Blount. Hugh Williamson. Richard Dobbs Spate, S-P-A-I-G-T-G-H-T. South Carolina, J. Rutledge, Charles Pinckney and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, Pierce Butler, Delaware, George Reed, John Dickinson, Jacob Broom, Gunning Bedford Jr., and Richard Bassett, and finally Georgia, William Few, and Abraham Baldwin, as I said, Rhode Island, not uh, represented at the signing of the Constitution. So let's continue with Mr. Arlt. Uh, now on page 10. 
The framers were one and all of the white race and the Christian faith, and their respective constituencies were likewise composed. This explains the words to ourselves and illuminates the phrase and our posterity. Now quoting, again at length, I have to see how much time we have left here today. Another very long quote or series of quotes here. Coming up, yeah, this is a page and a half versus quotes from different rulings. So let me just, I think I have enough time, 20 minutes to go through this. Quote, and this is from the commentaries by Joseph Story. The last clause in the preamble is to, quote, secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, unquote. And surely no object could be more worthy of the wisdom and ambition of the best men of any age. If there were anything which may justly challenge the admiration of all mankind, it is that sublime patriotism, which looking beyond its own times and its own fleeting pursuits, aims to secure the permanent happiness of posterity, that is your children and grandchildren, folks, of the white race only, to secure the permanent happiness of posterity by laying the broad foundations of government upon immovable principles of justice. Our affections, indeed, may naturally be presumed to outlive the brief limits of our own lives and repose with deep sensibility upon our own immediate descendants. Now remember, the Old Testament and the New Testament all confirm that we, Adamic Israelites, must maintain our separate our separation from the other races at all times. Integration is outside the purview of scriptures and outside the purview of the U.S. Constitution. So this, uh, this, our affections indeed may naturally be presumed to outlive the brief limits of our own lives and repose with deep sensibility upon our own immediate descendants. Not non-white immigrants although there is provision for white immigrants as from the very first immigration law signed by George Washington. But there is a noble disinterestedness in, the for, in that forecast which disregards present objects for the sake of all mankind and erects structures to protect, support, and bless the most distant generations. Okay, it does not include the other races. It simply does not. Commentaries by Joseph Story. Now back to the Dred Scott decision. Quote, It is very clear, therefore, that no state can, by any act or law of its own, passed since the adoption of the Constitution, introduce a new member into the political community created by the Constitution of the United States. No new members. No new definitions of members. Hence, the 14th Amendment, as it is construed, is unconstitutional. And for the same reason, it cannot introduce any person or description of persons who were not intended to be embraced in this new political family which the Constitution brought into existence, but were intended to be excluded from it. Just as the Bible excludes non-Adamites from our company. We are not to have any relations with them. We are supposed to deal with the rest of the world as a community, as a nation, as a people, and as a race. 
not as an integrated people, but as an exclusively separated, segregated race of people vis-a-vis the rest of the world. This people shall dwell alone, it says in the book of Leviticus. Again, let me, because this is this language is dead on. And for the same reason, it cannot introduce any person or description of persons who were not intended to be embraced in this new political family which the Constitution brought into existence, but were intended to be excluded from it. Dred Scott versus Sandard, page 406. Next quotation is, uh, again, from uh, these next two from Dred Scott. It is true, every person and every class and description of persons who were at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, recognized as citizens in the several states, became also citizens of this new political body, but none other. It was formed by them and for them and their posterity, but for no one else. And the personal rights and privileges granted or guaranteed to citizens of this new sovereignty were intended to embrace those only who were then members of the several state communities, or who should afterwards, by birthright, remember Joseph is the birthright tribe, or otherwise become members according to the provisions of the Constitution and the principles upon which was founded. In other words, it has to be done legally and according to the principles of the, the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. It was the union of those who were at the time members of distinct and separate political communities into one political family, namely the 13 states, whose power for certain speci- sorry, specified purposes was to extend over the whole territory of the United States, and it gave to each citizen rights and privileges outside his state, which he did not before possess, and placed him in every other state upon a perfect equality with its own citizens as to the rights of a person and the rights of, po- of property. It made him a citizen of the United States. Dred Scott, page 406. So, it's saying that what the Constitution says, only white people can be citizens of the several states. But if a state citizen of Illinois travels to Massachusetts, then his, his rights as a citizen of the state of Illinois are not to be abridged, and there's no reason for them to be abridged. But we have to you know, treat each other honorably wherever we domicile. Now, again, from Dred Scott, pages 410 and 411. The brief preamble sets forth by whom it was formed, for what purpose, and for whose benefit and protection. It declares that it is formed by the people of the United States, that is to say, by those who were members of the different political communities in the several states. And its great object is declared to be to secure the blessings of liberty to themselves and their posterity. It speaks in general terms of the people of the United States, and of citizens of the several states when it is providing for the exercise of powers granted or privileges secured to the citizen. It does not define what description of persons are intended to be included under these terms or who shall be regarded as a citizen as one of the people. It uses them as terms so well understood that no further description or definition was necessary. And as defined by George Washington himself, In the first immigration law, you have to be a free white person to be a citizen of any state. 
back to Mr. Arlt. In the view of the Founding Fathers, the political realm was regarded as a mere reflection or extension of the religious. For in fact, okay, let me repeat this here. This is very important. The, the politics follows our religion. Our religion is Christianity. So let me repeat this. In the view of the Founding Fathers, the political realm was regarded as a mere reflection or extension of the religious. That is really the Mosaic Law. For in fact, all Christian... I'm sorry, I inserted the word Christian. That's really what it means. But he writes... For in fact, all law is a direct expression of the prevailing religion upon which the state is founded, and that, of course, is Christianity. There is no such thing as a secular state, and religion is the great state-building principle. The American colonists created a new state because they were already a church, and that church was the soul of the state created. He's absolutely correct that every one of the colonies was Christian and already had established Christianity as as the faith of the land. Why not? Because we, the people of America, the true citizens of America, are those descendants, the posterity of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose true religion is true segregationist Christianity. The fathers held as divine doctrine that governments were made for the benefit of the governed and not for that of the governors. Indeed, even the king is supposed to obey Yahweh's laws. But they rarely have done that. Even in Old Testament times, the vast majority of the kings over Judah, and this is probably why the uh, ten northern tribes rejected that king, but they unfortunately set up another king of their own. These kings have, for the main part, been tyrants, just as predicted by Samuel the prophet. Uh, You know what you're asking for, people. Okay, but if you reject me, Yahweh, then you will have imperfect kings and they're going to tax you heavily. They're going to conscript you into military and make you fight wars that you have no business fighting, etc., etc. The fathers held as divine doctrine that governments were made for the benefit of the governed and not for that of the governors who were to regard themselves as the servants of God appointed for the benefit of his people. Well said. Absolutely well said. Namely, that the governors who were to regard themselves as the servants of God and additionally of the people appointed for the benefit of his people. The prosperity and happiness. So no other nation under the sun has claimed Yahweh as their creator father. Only we have. The prosperity and happiness of the nation was seen to be a direct outcome of its religion, and ruin was inevitably seen to follow vice and sin. Amen. Now, the Revolutionary War was preceded by a great movement called the Great Awakening. For about a hundred years, if not more, there was a great revival of faith in repentance and the people of America, pre, uh, pre uh, colonist America, pre constitutional America, agreed with these itinerant pastors, these itinerant preachers who were saying the reason why we are suffering what we're suffering is because we have failed to obey Yahweh's laws. 
Are we not in exactly the same situation today? Repent, people. Repent, repent, repent. And if we think that our prosperity is due to our own activity and our own uh, talents and abilities and not a blessing of Yahweh the Father and His Son Jesus Christ, then I'm sorry you don't understand what's happening in this world. You don't understand who the real sovereign is. Extremely well said. The prosperity and happiness of the nation was seen to be a direct outcome of its religion, and ruin was inevitably seen to follow vice and sin. Now, he, he makes, this, to me, a confusing statement. I think he lost track of his, his thinking here, and he states in the last line of this paragraph, The first line of instruction then was that religion follows government. I think he meant to say government follows religion because that's what he—that's the idea he's professing in the paragraph previous to the sentence. And then morality follows religion. Yeah, the laws of Yahweh determine our morality and, of course, our religion and the government that we have. Okay, so, so, so the point of this paragraph is to state that. The, our law is a direct result of our religion, namely the Mosaic Christianity. And second and consequential line of instruction was that the first duty of a government was to support, teach, and practice, have to turn the page here, the religion of the nation. Okay. What was the slogan of the American revolutionaries? No king but Jesus, it was an extremely religious, that is, Christian revolution. By public recognition, honor paid in it in the outward forms of its worship, and by using it as the groundwork of the education of the people, and by putting a social stigma upon all deviation from it. It was widely believed that failure to adhere to these principles would inevitably read to lead to the destruction of the state. And yes, that principle and that truth has become a reality for us. And the failure of the white, so-called Christian people to adhere to Yahweh's laws is the real reason why America is in the sad state it is today. Just as it's very similar to virus theory versus terrain theory, if you keep yourself clean, you won't get sick. If you eat poisonous food and inject your body with toxins called vaccinations, you're going to get sick. The same applies to us. If we indulge in vice and sin, which includes homosexuality, then the body politic is going to get sick. And that's and the result is COVID, which is not caused by a virus. It's caused by toxicity because the people of America are happy with their toxicity. And then he states, it was widely believed that failure to adhere to these principles 
would inevitably lead to the destruction of the state. It would lead to the tendency of men to follow the mode of life of the court, that he means by the uh, lavish courts of the kings and queens of Europe, and those socially above them. The irreligion of the ruling class would rapidly spread to the lower strata of social life, and indeed this has happened, Mr. Art. You understand reality. While simultaneously an opposite current would develop amongst the people who, in their earnest desire to preserve the faith of their fathers, would separate themselves from the constituted authorities and make the destruction of those authorities the devouring passion of their lives, namely those of us who rebel against the tyrants. Even if such destruction involved the ruin of the nation. But those of us who have eyes to see realize that the government, the servant has become the master, and the servant is being paid by a very wealthy master, namely the imperious Jew financier. But our people don't even perceive that. In opposition to them, the apostate and skeptically indifferent governors become, step by step, savage persecutors and call foreign allies to assist in suppressing the old national faith which alone they find themselves unable to suppress. So, Christianity, practiced by white people, has today become Judeo-Christianity, which is universalistic in scope and has become utterly anti-white. Thus, it was held that the nation would become divided into two parties, whose objects are not the defense of the country, but the extermination of each other. All wars are bankers' wars, and those bankers are Jews. In its distraction, the land falls prey to its enemies with all the horrors of national degradation and personal slavery to follow. This, then, was the prevailing view of history, law, and religion at the time of the American Republic was founded, and subsequently for the, at least its first hundred years of existence. So look what has happened to us since 1986, when this document was filed. There's no way that Mr. Arlt could have foreseen COVID, and the lockdowns, and the dictatorial rule by the perfidious ones in our country. We have been utterly usurped utterly usurped. And the real cause is the fact that so-called Christians refuse to obey his laws. You can blame the Jew all you want. But because we have filthified ourselves with all kinds of anti-Christian and anti-Mosaic behaviors and beliefs, we have become a sick nation, extremely sick nation, with one foot in the grave. Thanks for listening. This is part one of this wonderful document by Ed Arlt, his defense of the white race as the only citizens of America. We'll do part two next week, and I think there's probably three or four parts in this document. Thanks for listening. Praise the Yahweh, pass the ammunition. We'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. Never remain free.
they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James.